Hola, wizards, and welcome back to the Pursuit of Happiness Sat Chat with me, Pigtail Girl. And today I get the privilege and pleasure of introducing you to the wonderful James Corbett. And for those of you who know James, he doesn't really need any sort of introduction whatsoever <laughs> because he's just uh, at the top of his game, really, when it comes to independent journalism, if you don't mind me saying so. James, you're, to me, you're one of the best because you're just so clear and thorough and methodical in the way you present uh, information, which to me is just is, is brilliant. And uh, for those of you who don't know James, he runs something called uh, The Corbett Report, which you can find on YouTube still, I hope, and uh, on his website, uh, corbettreport.com, I believe. And uh, so James, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate those words. I do. I try not to take myself too seriously, but I take what I do very seriously. So it's uh, good to know that that resonates with people. Yeah. And, and I was just wondering if uh, you can still remember the moment in your life when you like the cookie crumbled, when you, you sort of saw through, I guess, the illusion or, or the game that's being played here. Do you still yeah. remember that moment? I'm not sure it was a moment, but I've had I've had several moments. When I go back and try to think about it, I I can think about different things throughout my life that showed me I was probably going to be on this track one way or another. And one that I've uh, identified was before I got into any of this information that I talk about on the Corbett Report. Um, it was uh, it, actually I, I started researching what became the Corbett Report in late 2006. But in early 2006, I was actually going through the airport, going home back to Canada. I live in Japan. So I was just going back to Canada for my friend's wedding. And uh, I made the mistake of joking with a customs officer who was, you know, looking over my form and asking me, what am I doing here? And blah, blah, blah. And I made a joke about the local hockey team, blah, blah, blah. It didn't go over so well. So he <laughs> scribbles something on my form and sends me on. And of course, I get pulled over by some security agent as I'm going to pick up my bags. So you got to come over here. So they take me into this other screening room or whatever. And go through all my bags and start pulling things out. They get to the point where they're pulling out my brand new cell phone that I just got here in Japan. And they're making me scroll through it and show them all the pictures on my cell phone and asking, who is that? Who is that? It's my friend. Like I took a picture of my friend. What on earth is this? Uh, they got to the point where they were pulling the diary out of my, out of my backpack and, and flipping it open, flipping through it and saying, can we take a copy of this? And wow. I said, I don't know. What are my rights here? I have no idea. Like it was totally mind blowing to me that this was happening. And, uh, and that was definitely an arrow through the brain moment where I realized, Oh, there's something very wrong about this. Like, I, I mean, everyone could tell there's some kind of crazy thing happening with this war on terror police state that uh, that's encroaching. But suddenly it was like, Oh, this is what it's about. This is what it feels like. So that was definitely a moment for me, but it wasn't until months and months later that that really clicked and fell into place. And it wasn't a single moment. It was a, a series of things. Um, basically, the long story short is I had just recently reconnected to the internet. I'd been going basically to internet cafes to check my email, you know, a few times a week. But I suddenly had internet back in my home. And um, at that point, you had Google Video, you had YouTube, you had all these video sharing sites that made it very easy to basically watch anything. That was back in the wild, wild west when whatever, The Daily Show and whatever else was being posted up in its entirety every day. So I was watching a lot of political videos, but I kept seeing related videos to 9-11 sort of stuff and other things. And I'd 
I'd click on it out of curiosity and I'd often go, ah, you know, I'd kind of poo-poo it. But then I'd click on something and it would be a startling fact or a startling thing and I'd go, really? Is that really true? And I'd go and look it up and, oh, there is an operation Northwoods. There was a plan to stage terror attacks and blame it on Cuba in order to invade that country. It was signed off by, on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You could go and actually read the actual document. That's crazy. I never knew that. Hey, why didn't I know that? <laughs> And that started the ball rolling. And from that point, you know, once you start digging into it and, and confirming these things for yourself, I think you just fall down that rabbit hole. And that was pretty much my story. Yeah, you certainly do. And uh, I wanted to bring up uh, the documentaries that you did recently called uh, How Big Oil Took Over the World and Why Big Oil Conquered Took the Over the World. Conquered, sorry, Conquered the World. And uh, if you haven't seen that, uh, those documentaries, guys, I do recommend you go straight over to the Corbett Report and check them out because I think that these should be shown in school. They're that good. I think every school child should be made as his part of history lessons to actually watch your documentaries on this topic. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, how you started the process of understanding what you talk about in those documentaries because I think it's crucial to bring people up to date to where we are now. Yeah, I, I hope um, it comes across in those interviews and in, in those documentaries that it was essentially 10 years of research boiled down into a, what amounts to about three and a half hours if you put two, those two documentaries together, How Big Oil Conquered the World and Why Big Oil Conquered the World. And it, to me, is kind of the big picture of the last hundred and potentially the next hundred years of history. Um, and there is a, there is a, a connecting thread that is not readily apparent. And it always bothered me. I could see this kind of picture and the way these different pieces fit together, but it, it's so hard to explain to people mm -hmm. because you have to get past people's kind of surface level understanding of this. Because if you say, oh, it's about big oil and how big oil conquered the world, I think people have a conception of what that's going to be about, what that story is. And yeah, they probably know bits of it and they probably got bits of that story right. So it does trace the early birth of the oil industry, the, the Rockefellers in America and the Rothschilds and the royal families in Europe and how they consolidated monopolies of the oil industry. But it's about so much more than that. Um, because obviously consolidating a monopoly of energy, energy production and energy use is itself uh, a type of monopoly on life almost mm -hmm. because yeah. so much of our civilization is based on those energy sources. And that's the point that I think it becomes difficult for people to see beyond. They understand, okay, big oil was this malevolent influence and it's run by these people who are, don't have your or my best interests in mind. And, and maybe people understand the dollar motive behind that. Maybe they understand a deeper motive, but maybe not. But that's kind of where it starts and ends for a lot of people. But for me, there's another door beyond that. It isn't about oil per se. Oil was the, the sort of just the vehicle for these people to consolidate that power and wealth. But it's about an agenda to really shape the world and to control the world population. And yes, for in the 19th and 20th century, that was about oil. But as we know, we're moving into the post-oil world. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people who think, oh, okay, well, big oil are the bad guys. So we're going to get rid of these oil monopolies and we'll all be happy again, right? Yeah. But no, of course not. The, the same people who consolidated that power and wealth through the oil industry are the same people who are now pushing us towards a post-carbon world. 
But wait, I thought they were all invested in oil. No, they've all divested from oil. The Rockefellers and those families aren't about oil anymore. It was never about oil per se. It was about the power and control that came with oil. But in the post-carbon world, we're looking at the next stage of this, which is uh, essentially, I mean, the long story short, it's about technocracy, which is a word that not many people have heard about. It was a real political movement that formed and was flourishing in the 1930s, but then kind of went away. It got kind of pushed aside and, and no one talks about it anymore, but they, those ideas are still there. And essentially it's the idea that wouldn't it be better if we were all ruled by technocrats, engineers and scientists who know what's what, and they know the best way to run society and all they need is complete information about every person and their energy usages, their inputs and outputs. And if we could just control that and, and database that and catalog them and know everything that they're doing at all times, wouldn't that be a great way to run society? Because then we'd know exactly how much to produce and how much of it, when to produce it. And it'll be so perfect and there'll be no wastage and it'll be good for the environment and all of this. Oh, and by the way, it's a totalitarian enslavement grid, but you know, don't worry about that. <laughs> well, of course, this is the next stage that they're trying to push us into. And it is no longer about oil, which is why they're talking so much about the post-carbon future, because it's the same people who are in control of the oil industry cartel are the ones that are pushing us towards this technocratic state. And that's the big picture I'm trying to show people. But as I say, there's the kind of, uh, most people get to that first goalpost, but they can't quite see beyond it. And they there's a lot of people now who are going into that technocratic future willingly embracing it because they believe it's good because it's not big oil. Well, it's even in the language, you know, they're, they're very clever with the way they, they use language. Like they call your phone a smartphone. So it's already implying that your phone is more intelligent than you because you're a stupid, terrible human that's destroying the planet, but your phone is a smartphone or a smart pad. So they're already giving us these kind of feel for it. And I don't know if recently you saw on Zero Hedge that they had an article that in Europe they've been running polls on Europeans to find out if they could have an AI, a robot, instead of a politician to run things would, that would be incorruptible, right? So you wouldn't be able to corrupt it, of course. You know, it would, you know, they didn't mention open source, everyone involved in programming. It's just a, an AI. Apparently a quarter of Europeans now are so sick and tired of the political arena, they're already being polled and agreeing to having an AI would be a better option at running their country. So to me, that's yeah, just- I didn't see that story in particular, but I'll go one step further because mm. here in Japan, recently a temple in Kyoto started using a robotic priest who will preach in multiple languages because it's a robot, <laughs> um, but is preaching. And there's video footage of this that you have to see to appreciate how deeply weird and creepy this is. But it's a bunch of Buddhist monks, you know, bowing down before this robotic priest. It's so bizarre, but yeah. Um, the, and in fact, there is the way of the future, I believe it's called, is the, the new religion that's been started by one um, former Silicon Valley big tech bigwig who has started a new religion to praise the coming AI godhead because essentially, if you have an intelligence that's going to be a billion times smarter than the smartest human who's ever lived, it'll essentially be God. I mean, it'll, it'll know everything and it'll be able to run society. So it will be God. So we might as well worship it. So they're already starting religions literally around AI. So it doesn't surprise me that people would be inclined to have an AI robot as, its, uh, as their leader. Um, you know, there's a few problems with that. One of which is that at this point, at any rate, AI is still... 99% hype and smoke and mirrors 
And it is still things that are being programmed by people. And that's, that's the thing that a lot of people don't take into account of this. Oh, it's a, it's a system that'll be run by computers that know everything. No, it, it's run by computers that are programmed to operate on certain bounds and look at certain problems in certain ways by programmers who themselves are being paid by people above them. So where do you think the real control in that system lies? It's not with you and me. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have a husband who's actually a computer programmer, so I know exactly <laughs> about AI technology. But, you know, you hear that there's all these conspiracy theories that go around like there's some alien AI that's here trying to take over the world. Have you ever heard about these conspiracy theories? That, um, and I've what heard do you think various permutations of this. Um, <laughs> I've heard that things like uh, Bitcoin and blockchain technology was created by AI to yeah. data mine all human knowledge and get everything on the blockchain, etc. Um, you know, I don't even know to what extent stories like that are. I mean, they don't even have to be literally true to have an element of truth to them mm -hmm. in, in the sense that um, it doesn't it doesn't really matter if there is some alien force that is directing this or whatever. But essentially it i mean artificial intelligence to the extent that there is something there there and not just the smoke and mirrors that people try to pass off as ai but mm. to the extent that there's something there there or at least will be on the other side of the singularity that the transhumanists always talk about that uh, is essentially an alien technology i mean in the sense it's not it's not it's not from us or mm. it won't be controlled by us and so it doesn't matter if it's from you know planet Neptune or whatever. It's just it, the, the fundamental point is it's not, it's not human. It's not hu of humanity. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I think we need to take a very serious consideration of. I don't agree with the transhumanists in very much, if at anything, but I do agree that uh, the acceleration of technolo technological change is exponential and we are heading towards a point at which we will not be able to control the technologies that we're creating. And before we get to that point, maybe we should have some kind of societal discussion about this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not holding my breath that that's going to happen anytime soon, but if it doesn't, I'm not really sure what will survive on the other side. Will humanity as we know it today exist in a generation or two? There was a point at which that kind of talk was hyperbole and craziness, but that is a real possibility, um, unfortunately, at this point. Yeah, and it just makes you wonder, um, like, there's no safeguards we, in, within our society at the moment. There's no safeguards against the rollout of technology. We have the coming rollout of the 5G network, as an example. Now, a lot of people are very concerned about this. Scientists are speaking out against the dangers, but it just seems like no one ever listens. It just, it's just like this mad rollout like oh we, but we have to get there and i think it's because yeah like the technology they want doesn't exist they're trying to make out like it exists but it doesn't exist yeah. ai technology as far as i know is still very basic it's just like oh this person likes red shoes this person likes this dress oh, okay red shoes and this dress we'll show them adverts on that and maybe it's getting it's learning but um i'm not sure what you think about the 5g rollout and you know what perhaps that could even be used for long term and if there's any sort of more sinister things behind yeah. that grid. Well, even disregarding the health effects, and obviously there's a lot to talk about with regards to the health effects, but even disregarding that, the 5G network is what is required in order to create the internet of things that they're yeah. talking about, where everything, everything that we have will soon be embedded with RFID tags or some sort of sensing device that will then be readable and communicating it constantly with the 5G network. And 
that's exactly what you were talking about before. Smartphone, smart grid, smart everything. Smart everything house. will be exactly smart house. Yeah. Uh, turn on a TV, turn on a microwave, turn on a light. Oh, that's so 20th century. Come on. You just say, Alexa, please monitor me while you turn on my lights for me, please. If you <laughs> will do that for me. Will you please today? Could you? And there will be a point at which Alexa will say, no, sorry, Dave, I can't do that. But, um, you know, ultimately, this is where we're going. And it, it boggles my mind that so few people seem to have qualms about this. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a propaganda construct. Maybe they're just trying to assure us that, you know, don't worry. No, no you're the only, you're the crazy one who cares mm -hmm. about these things. But I, I, unfortunately, I do know people who have put smart appliances in their home, and I just keep saying, why? Why are you doing this? Um, but yeah, these are the choices that we are making. And the, the worst part of it, from my perspective, is that we are willingly doing this. I mean, mm -hmm. think about 1984 or something. That's a totalitarian police state. If you don't do what Big Brother wants you to do, they'll take you to the re-education camp or whatever. We, we don't exactly live in that society. There are people who are literally spending their own money to buy these devices that will surveil and monitor them. And I'm sure when the 5G technology starts rolling out, people will be lining up outside the Apple store to get their new iPhone 5G. And, uh, you know, uh, the worst, the worst, worst part about this for my perspective is okay well i'm obviously not going to buy those technologies but it's getting to the point where it doesn't matter if you buy or don't buy these technologies because it will be surrounding you the 5g network is something that's going to be surrounding us and mm -hmm. whether you buy a device or not you're going to be bathed in the same microwave radiation that everyone else is so here's here's the important point you you make a very good point we have the precautionary principle that we're told is the reason why we have to utterly transform our economy and everything because of the possibility that, you know, with the, the horrible life-giving CO2 gas that we're emitting yeah, 100 terrible. years from now, the sea level is going to rise two <laughs> inches or whatever. So we have to completely change the entire economic organization of society and give all our power and taxes to Al Gore and whoever. Uh, because of the precautionary principle. But the precautionary principle doesn't seem to apply to 5G and the potential health effects of that or or vaccines or GMO or yeah, any exactly. of these other types of technologies that they love to push and, and there's no precautionary principle there. Yeah, there may be problems, but whatever, we'll sort it out when we get there. But things like, uh, you know, global warming, suddenly, you know, there is a precautionary principle that we can get behind. That's so true because, uh, you know, as activists uh, in the last 20 years, you know, I, I consider myself a real environmentalist as in like I do care about GM crops and just the mass experimentation upon nature in, in every aspect of nature, humans, animals, uh, nature itself, the cutting down of forests, all of this thing actually, it concerns me that that is just going rampant where meanwhile, the, the CO2, the greenhouse gas stuff that they're trying to get everyone on, on board, which they're now blaming on to us. But as far as I remember, I wasn't the one who was advocating cutting down forests and making loads of plastic crap that no one's, you know, tidying up and all of these things that genuinely concern me. But there was, there's, why haven't we banned plastics then? You know, if you're so worried about the environment, you want to tax me, but why is there plastic crap everywhere still? Where I know that there are alternatives to plastic, that if you just made a blanket law, no more plastic, people would have to comply, but they don't do that. So there in yeah. itself, it shows you their level of concern for the environment. It, it's, you know, it's Yes, clear. it's a completely hijacked movement because everyone does care about the natural environment and the world that we're leaving behind for our children and grandchildren. Everyone does have that sense. 
But of course, if they can steer that, that concern that we have towards carbon dioxide and only carbon dioxide, this is the one thing that we all have to think about, talk about, tax, and, and devote all our attention to. Meanwhile, the U.S. military is literally dumping to toxic nerve chemicals in the, in the rivers, and there's, uh, as you say, I mean, so many problems. GM, GMO, basically an open-air experiment with the genomic nature of, re of the world itself. It's just insanity. But no one even wants to talk about that because the bought and controlled environmental movement is 100% directed towards CO2. And why CO2 in particular? Because, of course, all living beings breathe it or omit it or in some way use carbon dioxide. So suddenly it becomes a control point. And eventually, and I know this again, I, I've said this so many times, but I'll say it again. Eventually, of course, the carbon rationing is going to come and you're going to get allotted a certain amount of CO2 that you're going to be allowed to expel in a year. And that that'll get whittled down and down and down until, of course, you have the peasants who are living like peasants of old, looking at the lords and ladies on the on the, the castle on the top of the hill living these lives of luxury while the, the peasants are, you know, scraping out a living from the soil. That'll be the, the vision of the future in this, this uh, new green utopia that, that's being pushed, where, of course, I mean, you know, the, the bigwigs have to fly around and have their important conferences and, and get business done. But, you know, you, you for whom, you know, you're the reason the weather gods are angry. So you have to you know, scrape out a living from the soil. And uh, don't, don't, don't live, give out too much CO2. So that's where this is going. And the worst part of it is that so few people know about those details of the actual connections between the oil barons of old and the environmental movement of the mid to late 20th century and how that developed. And it's literally the Rockefellers and Rothschilds and families like this that formed and helped to fund and propagate so much of this propaganda that is now being willingly, willfully consumed and regurgitated by the, the hijacked environmental movement. And I could go back to the U, uh, UNCED conference in the 1980s that prepped the way for 1992 and the Rio Earth Summit that was run by Morris Strong, who was this incredible figure, one of the leading lights of the environmental movement. He organized the Earth Summit. He was involved in the UN Summit on Overpopulation in the 1970s. He was this great savior for humanity, started the Earth Charter and all of this. And oh yeah, he was also an oil man who was heavily tied into the Rockefellers. Wait, what? What? I don't, I don't remember that part of the story. They don't <laughs> teach you that one when they're talking about what a great environmentalist Morris Strong. No, they don't. And there's a reason because those links are direct. You can tie a direct thread into the people who were controlling the economic system of the 19th and 20th century and the people who are seeking to control it in the 21st century. Yeah, and, and basically what it's all leading to, of course, is not only the enslavement of us on an energetic and day-to-day -day level, but it's also about the, the control of the population, isn't it? And now we have like movements like birth strike. And today I was looking at a horrific video. I mean, honestly, it terrifies me to see such brainwashed uh, individuals looking back at me from a screen called uh, the angelic initiative, where a mother and daughter are telling people they are channeling angels and the angels are telling them now to abort any fetuses that they're growing and that they need to stop having children and just trying to basically terrorize a whole generation of women into giving up having children basically yeah uh this is i mean this is disturbing to me because it um i've often said that the the modern environmental movement the hijacked environmental movement that's all about carbon dioxide and and global warming 
is a religion. And I don't make that comparison lightly. It's not just an analogy. I, I really think that that's, it really does take the form and the place of religion in a lot of people's lives at this point, where it is a dogma. There is a doctrine. It has its original sin. You, you are here, therefore you give out carbon dioxide, therefore you are committing original sin. You can atone for that sin with your carbon taxes or carbon allotments or whatever it is, offsets or whatever, you know, you pay your money and you will appease the weather gods. It plays on some very Im important and deep-seated psychological things that have been played on for many, many millennia by priest class and people who try to rule over other people um, using Uga Booga and stuff like that. Well, this is, this is the modern form of it. And when you talk about that, I haven't seen this angel initiative yet, but I, I can almost imagine exactly what it's about in the way that it goes, because literally, oh, you know, the angels are telling us, you, 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 we don't want children anymore. There's too many people on this planet. And this, the scariest thing is from an esoteric perspective, this is a death cult. It is trying to re-engineer the natural human desire for life and to create and to multiply and to, and to prosper. That is the natural human drive that we all have. And they're trying to transform that and hijack it and turn it into a death cult where we're all wishing for the death of humanity because we're a cancer on this planet. So in order for life to bloom, we must die. And uh, I, the, the incredibly dark energies that are released by that mind rot that's being injected into the population right now does not lead to a happy place. And well, you know, when you so traumatize... I'm trying to put the brake on it before we get there. When you traumatize people, it's easier to brainwash them and control them. So as far as I can tell, since the invention of the education system and the television and in mass media, uh, before we had religion doing it, but now we have those tools doing it. And uh, basically it's just about traumatizing children, making them believe their life is already in danger. I remember it being done to me even at school. My dad remembers it being done to him. It was the nuclear era where they had to keep hiding under their tables, expecting to be blown to smithereens. I mean, how you, what does that do to a child being told that? The trauma, and we know MKUltra is called trauma-based mind control. So basically traumatizing young human beings and then bombarding them with negative fear-based media it's allowing them a deeper level of control over us. And you can yeah. see the brainwashing levels are being stepped up. Yeah. And I used to teach in the Japanese public school system here. And uh, I remember, you know, in elementary school, they'd have the drills. What if an intruder was coming into the school and you'd all have to go and hide in a corner of the room and the teacher would lock the door and everything. And I, I experienced that. And I was just sitting there thinking, what is this teaching the children really? I mean, in a real situation like this, I mean, it, a, does this happen with uh, enough frequency in rural Japan where I was teaching for this to be the, you know, something that we're drilling every, every few months? And B, what are we really teaching these children um, to basically to fear, to live in that fear and to know how to, you know, just cower in a corner and, and hide? Um, it doesn't seem like the best life lesson to be teaching these young children, like six, seven years old. Really? Do we really have to be subjecting them to this trauma? And this is in Japan, which... I mean, I read about the stuff that goes on in the U.S. with these lockdown drills now, and they, they will charge into the school with SWAT teams and, and uh, do, you know, uh, blanks or whatever. They pretend to kill teachers and stuff. Like, just utter, and that is oh torture. God. They are torturing children to basically get them into compliance mode. It's definitely, that's definitely what they're, they're doing. And then if you, 
you know, you fill them also with all the, the computer games and the, the movies and the toxins and the vaccines and, and everything. I mean, when you get it all together, it's a real big mess. So basically, I don't know if you have any ideas, uh, James, uh, what, what can we do? So that we know the truth. What's the next step, really, for, for humanity? If we want to beat these guys, is it just keep spreading the word, hoping people wake up? Um, what's your well, advice? as I was gesturing to, to, uh, towards earlier in the conversation, it is about what we are choosing to do because so many people are going into this willingly, embracing this, um, as I say, because they don't... I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt because they don't understand what this is really about, what the big agenda is, where this is going. So they're literally buying the tools of their own enslavement and, and you know, marching for uh, climate striking and birth striking and all of this because of their trauma that they've been conditioned to. So we have to sna snap that. And I, I still believe that ultimately the, the human spirit is for life and for multiplication and growing. And, you know, we are here to create, we are creating beings. I still think that is, that is our core nature. We, it's being twisted and, and, and turned into rot by the propaganda that we're subjected to. But I still think that that seed is there. So I like to think that if there are enough of us that are watering those seeds, that it will flower and that humanity can turn back to the right course. But it is harder and harder as we go through history and the clique that we have identified that included those oil barons and the others that were monopolizing energy in the 19th and 20th century and seeking to do it in the 21st century. As that becomes more and more refined, unfortunately, we're coming up um, against as I keep going back to the potential end of humanity as we know it, not necessarily the end of the world or not necessarily the end of all of us, but just, you know, when we start talking about genetic manipulation and these mind robot interface technologies and neural lace and all of this, really, what will it mean to be a human being in the future? And can we avoid it? That's the real question. And I, I wish I had a, a simple pat answer, you know, one, two, three, here we go. And this is what we do and we'll get out of it. I don't, I certainly don't have that pat answer for people, but I do know that at the very least we can resist it. At the very least we can be aware, oh, this is where they're trying to take us. We should not go in that direction. Oh, we can start thinking more about uh, ways that we can cooperate with each other. We can bypass the economic system that's been created as one of those tools of enslavement around us. As I point out in my uh, uh, documentary on the Federal Reserve, Century of Enslavement, it, the monetary system, it has been created basically to keep the, the populace in a state of debt enslavement for their, from the time they're born to the time they die and to keep them chained to the system as it exists. Well, maybe we should start thinking about trying to cooperate uh, together. So I've talked about uh, the P2P economy, for example, in some of my work. We are starting to be able to cut out the middlemen, including the monetary middlemen that has kept us chained to that system before. So let's use that technology and that, that ability while we have it in the form that we have it. And who knows how long that'll last. Um, when we uh, look at uh, robotics and things like that, if we're not talking about open source everything, then again, we're just buying into the system of our enslavement. So if we are not 
ultimately trying to embrace in every possible way open technologies that are transparent, that we can see what is going on under the hood, then we are just selling ourselves into the system. Hey, Facebook is free. YouTube is free. Google is free. All these Gmail, oh, I can use all this free stuff. No, you, it is not free. It comes with a gigantic price tag. Not only are they surveilling you in order to sell stuff to you, they're surveilling you to get your data. Um, we should not be embracing and actively campaigning for the technocrats' dream of total energy enslavement by playing along with the global warming agenda. And they, oh, won't somebody think of the children and tax us into oblivion because that will save us from the weather gods. There's so many different levels to this that, it, I mean, there's no one answer as to what we should be doing, but every single one of those answers starts with us knowing the problem and knowing that that agenda that's being pushed right now is not in our interests and we do not want to go that way. And then we can have the societal conversation and that is happening to a certain extent on the internet about what can we do and okay, let's try this, let's try that. And I'm all about many different people trying many different things and competition and you know, may the best idea win or maybe there can be many different ideas. We don't all have to live life in the same way. But until we start thinking in those ways and devoting our time and attention and resources in those directions and away from the monolithic powers that shouldn't be, we won't even have the start of a solution. Yeah, I agree. Our, <clears throat> excuse me. Our attention and what we use and what we give our money to and our time is, is giving them our energy, basically. It's all current. It's like currency. It's everything. And, uh, but I've noticed that it can be very difficult to persuade people out of their comfort zones and what they're used to. So maybe the censorship thing that they're trying to bring in right now in, in YouTube land, in Facebook's, actually I'm just hoping it's gonna sort of backfire and open people's eyes as to you know, what these platforms are really about. I certainly hope so. I mean, it is, it is to a certain extent. There is a certain percentage of the population that's going, whoa, wait, what's going on here? Why, why suddenly is this information blocked? Why do you not want me to get this? And certain people will be attracted to. Unfortunately, the majority of people will go along to get along. In fact, the majority of people probably don't even notice it in their day-to-day -day life. So out of sight, out of mind. And then those that do notice it, some will choose to go along with the system because it's just easier. Um, and yeah, that's the real uphill battle. I mean, the uphill battle here isn't necessarily, I mean, when you really boil it down to brass tacks, there are really, there are billions of us. There are a exactly. small clique of them, the, the them, them, the zero point, not the 1%, the 0.0001% who really pull the strings. If we really knew our power compared to the parasites that leached off of us, we would be able to not, it's not even about overthrowing. It's not some big revolution that needs to happen. It just, we just laugh and go, that's ridiculous and walk away from that system. It is all about creating an alternative system that we can embody and embrace. And unfortunately, again, that's not a popular idea, which is, and, uh, and uh, any avenue towards that is being shut down by the censorship that you're talking about that's going on right now. So it gets harder and harder. My, I mean, on a cynical level, I know there will always be a way for the people who are really, who really care and really want to work outside the system. There will always be a way. There's always cracks. There's always things. If for no other reason than the powers that shouldn't be, always leave little back doors that they can get in and out as they need. So, I mean, you know, it's fine to sh ship in the 
cocaine, as long as it's on a CIA flight or, you know, U.S. military flight, that'll, that'll get in, no problem. So there's always breaks in the system and ways that you can get around rules and regulations and laws that are meant for the common people. Um, and the people who are really interested in that will always find a way. But that's always just a sliver of the population. Most people just go along to get along. And Google, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram is the internet to these people. And they'll never, ne even if they are, even if they think there might be a reason why this might not be a good thing to give all our money, time, and attention and resources to these big monolithic entities, their answer to that will probably be, well, well, we just need that other big monolithic entity, the government, to come in and regulate them, and then everything will be all right. Uh, again, people's imagination are so limited when they're working in that system. So I'm just trying to open the doors of that perception and open the conversation to, no, we do not have to give our time, our energy, our resources, our life, our life and livelihoods to these entities that are seeking to control us. And honestly, I think it is about that, directing our attention this way or that. Again, we don't really, I think most people don't appreciate the power that we have as just common regular people, but we are the vast majority. If you want a very simple explanation of that, a simple visualization of that, watch The Tiny Dot. It's a video on YouTube um, made by Larkin Rose that puts it in a very pictorial way. It's, you can see, yeah, oh yeah, there is a mass of us. There's a very tiny amount of them and they're ruling over us and oh, we're so afraid of them. But it's ridiculous when you look at it from that perspective. If you want a more literary version of that, there was a treatise called The Politics of Obedience by Etienne de la Boétie, who was an author in the 16th century. And he wrote about this 500 years ago, about how essentially tyrants are only tyrants and they're only able to operate because people obey, because people believe in the system. They believe, oh, well, he's the ruler, so we got to do what he says. But no, there are millions of us. There's just one tyrant. It's not a problem at all if we disobey, but you just got to get people to realize the power is ultimately with them and the choices that they're making. Yeah, it's like uh, a friend of mine even had an idea for China because they have now all the facial recognition and the social credit system. But there's like in China, there's so many people that if you wanted to bring that system down, you wouldn't even have to be violent. All you would need would be like a million people all together in a non-smoking area at the same time and start smoking away and breaking the rules. And then you would just overload the system and, and you could get to the point where everyone in China was banned from doing everything. And then suddenly the system just crumbles and, and you can't do anything. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. That's how you take the exactly. system. And think of that in China. Yeah, one million people. That's like one one thousandth of the population. That's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing, really. They could, they could bring that system down in a day with just going to have a cigarette in a non-smoking area. So when you look at it like that, you start to realize how much power people really have. Yeah. And, and you so start to realize why the system always cracks down so violently, so hard on anyone who's really trying to push that boundary or find the areas where people uh, are not allowed to go. So um, an example of that was that protest movement that, that there was a few years ago where there were people uh, dancing at the, the Lincoln Memorial or one of those somewhere in Washington, I don't know, I've never been, but it's like you're not allowed to dance here was one of the really bizarre arcane rules of this place. So there were people who were doing this dance protest where they just go and they just dance there and they were being you know wrestled down to the ground by security guards and it was just it was ridiculous i mean looking at that is just it's insanity but that's and and so that's why they go crazy when you find those spots that are clearly stupid and there's that's a clear why on earth is there even a law about this but there it is and we got to enforce it um more 
uh, on a less sort of lighthearted note, there's people like Ross Ulbricht who starts something like the Silk Road, a genuinely revolutionary idea because suddenly, yeah, people can transact between each other and there's no way to know who's doing what and you can't control it and suddenly there's no laws. Uh-oh. So someone like Ross Ulbricht goes to prison for however many life sentences he's uh, serving for creating mm -hmm. a service for people to basically transact with each other. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, whoever, think of, a, a, there's millions of examples you can think of of people who murdered and done all sorts of hor horrific things who were in jail for a lot less time. Uh, why is that? Why do they prosecute so strongly on the people who are finding those cracks in the system? Yeah, whereas raping children, you know, 18 months you can be out or even just get it all covered up. But, you know, God forbid you, you free humanity from the government's grasp. <laughs> And that's actually why I was, I have been a fan of Bitcoins and cryptocurrencies, but you know, I'm aware of this technocracy. So that mm. I, I sort of, you yeah. know, open source Bitcoin, it's peer to peer, all this kind of thing I love, but then there's also that part of my brain that's like, yeah. oh, but. No, you're right to have that. It's a double-edged um, mm. technology for sure. And there, there's no doubt that there is a vision for the technocratic future that does rely on a blockchain type currency. A central bank cryptocurrency is what's uh, being termed by the Bank for International Settlements, which is the central bank of central banks in Basel, Switzerland, a bizarre entity that needs to be looked into a lot uh, more closely. But um, they've, they've been talking recently about central bank cryptocurrencies and how this can be done. China is thinking about issuing a digital currency. And um, I talked about this in an episode of my podcast called The Bitcoin PSYOP, which is about how yeah, there's, there's going to be blockchains, decentralized blockchain cryptocurrencies, and then there's going to be centralized blockchains that are administered by governments or banks or private entities of some sort. And they're going to try to confuse you between those two different types of technologies. And they're going to try to hand you the poison pill, of course. Mm -hmm. Oh, you've heard all about this cryptocurrency. Well, here's this government-issued one. Take this government-issued wallet and do all your transactions through this cryptocurrency. And, oh, wait, there's nothing crypto about it. The government will see everything you do and every transaction you make and will be able to follow every step you take, literally and figuratively. Um, that's the vision of the technocrats. So, yes, it is the technology that enables both visions, the freeing of humanity and the enslavement of mm -hmm. humanity. And you better know which side you're choosing when you're, when you're choosing in that space, which is why. And I don't, I don't think Bitcoin is the answer. I think it's just... The, the sort of seed of the solution. I'm not sure it's the final form and they're trying to pervert it and convert it into something that's, that will play nicely within the system. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that we should never allow just one thing to be the thing we rely on. You know, if, if we could have the cryptocurrencies, yes. but we also need to have gold, we need to have yes. silver, we need to have money, or we just need to get rid of all of it. You know, if you're gonna have something, you need to have different choices. You can't just have one. Yes. Thing. Okay, That's such an important point because yeah. so many people get stuck on, oh, you're promoting this and that's a false solution or whatever. No, I'm not promoting that. I'm promoting as many different ideas as we can get on the table because the system that exists is all about trying to limit your options. It's all about this is the currency. Uh, this is the currency of the land. And if you, you, you can use this for all public tender and this alone and anything that's not this is going to be counterfeit and we're going to crack down on you. No, no, no. We need many options, community currencies and cryptocurrencies and all sorts of different ideas. And I'm all about that. And I've talked about many of those different ideas on my podcast before, but there are people who get hung up on 
the the silver bullet, the one thing, the one ring, if you will, <laughs> and get so obsessed with it. No, 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 no. You've got to leave space for different things. And that's, that's so obvious in the monetary perspective to me. I'm going to want a different way of transacting with a friend that I know physically here in Japan that I can talk to and interact with on a one-to-one basis than when I'm buying something online from halfway around the world from someone I don't know. Those are different transactions. They require completely different monetary instruments. So why should we be thinking only in one direction? No, we need lots of options on the table. Exactly. So James, uh, I would like to end the show by allowing you to tell people, if they don't already know, once again, how they can find your work and uh, where you're hanging out these days on the net. Yeah, good question, because it's getting a harder and harder place to just hang. Um, uh, CorbettReport.com is the one-stop shop for everything. C-O-R-B-E-T-T report.com. And that's got all my work and everything that I ever do will be posted there completely for free. Uh, I do have a subscriber newsletter, but the editorial that I write for that newsletter is also available for free. And there's a link there. So you don't have to subscribe. That's really only for people who are familiar with my work and appreciate it. They can subscribe to help support my work. But everything I do is free and available there at CorbettReport.com. I am on YouTube for the time being. Um, I'm getting more and more restricted in various ways. My World War I conspiracy documentary, talking about World War I history, has been age-restricted, at least parts two and parts three. So you, you have to be signed into Google and, you know, over 18 years old to watch this World War I documentary. It's getting worse and worse, so I don't recommend people go there. Um, I'm also on BitChute and DTube and Steemit and Minds.com and bit.tube and <laughs> probably several other places that I don't even remember at this point. But it, as I say, you can always find my work at corporatereport.com. Okay, well, thanks a lot, James, for joining us today. And uh, yeah, see everyone at home on the next episode. Thanks for joining us. Bye, James. Goodbye.